Hello, Northbrook. It's kind of odd for me to be standing in my office to uh, do my teaching for this week, but we will work with the situations that we have. I feel real strange standing here talking to no one, although at times I talk to myself, so maybe I should just look at it that way, but I feel like I should be out in the auditorium behind the podium to speak to you today. But again, we are in this situation and we want to do what's best for everyone. And so I'm hoping that this format will be useful to you and helpful as we continue our study in the book of Galatians. Today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, and I'm going to read out loud as we usually do. The passage for today, which is from chapter 4, verses 8 to 20, and I invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read Galatians 4, 8 to 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that they may make much, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. We as Americans live in what many today call a polarized society. Individuals are drawn towards celebrities who champion large general causes, and then, they def and then people defend those people. And they defend those causes with what are often poor and shallow arguments. More often than that, talking points are thrown back and forth with little careful explanation or really much listening taking place. And in one sense, that would appear to be what has happened in the churches of Galatia. The debate centers upon the role of the Mosaic law in the life of the believers. Judaizers using character assassination and insistence upon Jewish tradition, have convinced the Galatian churches that circumcision and law-keeping are required for ongoing acceptance with God. But, you know, Paul is not one to engage in argument without solid 
well-reasoned positions. And he has laid out overwhelming evidence to prove that new covenant believers have no responsibility to the demands of the old covenant in law. And in this passage we have just read, verses 8 to 20 of chapter 4, Paul makes a personal appeal to these Christians, taking them back to their experience before coming to belief in Jesus and taking them back to their relationship with him in those early days together as children of God. One of Paul's key ideas in this letter as he speaks of the law is that of slavery. He's already talked about it several times, and he's going to come back to it again later on. But here in verse 8, he reminds them that prior to faith in Jesus, they were enslaved to idolatry. They were enslaved to the false worship of false gods. If you remember from Corinth, and, and maybe you've heard of other uh, cities, how many temples there were for the, for the Greek people, the Roman people to go to and offer sacrifices and hold their festivals and feasts in. Their life was controlled by the demands of the worship of these false gods. They're, they were controlled by the performance that was demanded by the fickle whims of their gods and goddesses. And in reality, they were enslaved to works. And those works were demanded by selfish priests and priestesses who represented these false deities. He wants them to remember that sense of threat from false gods that kept them faithful to worship through fear. And he wants them to remember the, those memories of the burden of the demands placed upon them. These were people who were not Jews. They were not people who had experience with the Jewish law and the, and the fear and the burden that came from the Jewish law. And yet, they had experienced their own fear. And they had experienced their own weight and the questions that pushed to the surface of their daily routines. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Are the gods happy with all that I've done for them? Are my circumstances a result of unhappiness from the gods? And Paul's question is very simple to these people. Why, as children of the true God, people who are fully accepted with him because of Christ's finished work, why would you go back to enslaving yourself to a system that cannot save you? What I find interesting here is how Paul links their former pagan practices to their current practices by bringing up their observance of days and months and seasons and years. And he's referencing the fact that they are now observing the Sabbath and they're observing new moons and the feasts and festivals that go with that. They are observing the Jewish feasts, the Jewish festivals such as Passover and, and the Feast of Tabernacle and all the other ones. And now they're also observing the Sabbath years from the law. What he implies here, and this is to me shocking what Paul does, but what he implies is that believing that the keeping of the law gains you standing with God is equivalent to keeping the demands of the pagan gods. He sets the keeping of the law for believers 
right alongside the keeping of the demands of pagan gods. And he can do that because the reality is that both of them enslave the person and neither of them save the person. And there is one other profound yet simple statement contained in verse 9 that is a theme that occurs often in his letters and is central to this passage. Paul writes of knowing God and having come to be known by God. That's an, that's an incredible statement. That they have come to know God, but they have also come to be known by God. His use of the word know here does not speak to an absence of ignorance on the part of the person or God himself. It's not the idea that one day I suddenly realized there was a God and I suddenly realized what this God was all about. That's not what he means by they have come to know God. And he definitely does not mean that all of a sudden God realized that these people existed. Obviously, that can't stand. His original readers understood this, these statements of coming to know God and have come to be known by God. They understood this to refer to an experiential, relational knowledge. I've heard it often explained, and, and you may have as well, but I've often heard it explained as the difference between knowing there is a governor of Iowa and comparing that to how I know a close personal friend. Or even comparing how I know a co-worker to how I know my wife. What Paul is communicating here is when a person comes to faith in Jesus, that there is a growing experience of relationship established. When I first met Terry, I knew she had beautiful green eyes and that she was a quiet, poised person. Over time, I came to know that she, other things about her, the reasons why she was so quiet. I came to know why there was a depth in, in her eyes as I looked at her. I learned to know what she loved. I learned to what she didn't like. After we got married, I learned that she didn't like the dorm prank of throwing cold water over the top of the shower. I learned very quickly that I should never do that again. But I learned things about her and I came to know her in ways that I never have before. And that relationship that's established, where it's strong and growing and close, we often speak of in terms of warmth, a warm relationship. Or we speak in terms of belonging and acceptance and love. And, and at best, we even talk about feeling safe with that person. These are kinds of relationships that are not based on performance or what have you done for me lately. In a couple of years, Terry and I will have been married 40 years. You don't have a, a strong, good relationship over 40 years if it's based on performance, if it's based on, oh, you haven't been nice to me lately. It, it doesn't work that way. Those kinds of relationships are rare 
and precious. And Paul can't understand why these people who have come to know God and have come to be known by God, why these people would want to trade that kind of a relationship for a set of rules that brings nothing but bondage. Relationship forms the rest of Paul's appeal in verses 12 to 20. He reminds them of their shared experiences in the gospel as they walked with one another in their former days together. There was a close bond. There was an engaging, not only with their spiritual lives, but also with the physical. They spent time together and they cared about each other's needs and their wants. So he he speaks in, in the first four verses of 8 to 12 about how they've come to a relationship in God, having been freed from slavery, having been freed from their false religion. They've come to know the one true God, and they've established this amazing relationship by his initiative with God. And on the other hand, there is also this relationship that they have between each other, with each other, as children of the Heavenly Father, as people who share a bond in Jesus. As Paul writes about that time, there's a side of Paul that comes through that every once in a while peeks through his melancholy, his cantankerousness that exists, if that's a word, cantankerousness. Every once in a while there are these tender Moments, these tender memories that flow from Paul's quill. We see that in Philippians quite a bit and in a few other places. But as he writes here in Galatians, he remembers his physical weakness when he was with them. It was a difficult thing that Paul was enduring. It was a chronic thing that Paul was enduring. Many believe it might have been some kind of a eye condition, uh, a, a blindness that was coming, or uh, uh, some kind of an infection that was in his eyes, but it was something that seemed to have been there for a while for him. And what Paul remembers of that time is the fact that he was a burden on these people, that he He weighed on these people because of his physical weakness. What he was experiencing was not a small thing. And he was endeared to them that they loved him. In the midst of this mess that he was experiencing and and the, the weight of it, they loved Paul in such a way that caring for him was not at all a burden in their mind. I don't know how many people experience that anymore, but I have. There are people that go out of their way to minister to you and to love you and to communicate to you that you're important to them. And and your needs and your weaknesses are not a burden to them. It's something they want to share with you. And he remembers that they treated him 
as he says, like he was an angel sent from God. That's, that's an amazing statement. But even more, he goes further and he says they treated him in the same way they would have treated Jesus. That's astounding. For, for a man to come in to their midst and, and preach the gospel to them through his weaknesses. And they loved him and they cared for him. And he puts their love for him on the same plane as how they would have treated Jesus if he walked into their midst. He goes even further. And this is where I say it wasn't just on a spiritual level. But he says they loved him so much that they would have been willing to gouge out their own eyes for him if it would have brought relief. That is a rare and a precious relationship that was formed in the bonds of Jesus. It was a rare and precious relationship that enjoyed the closeness and love of a family. But now, as he writes to them, things have changed. He says that they have become, he has become an enemy to them, not because of anything he's done. But they now are seeing him as an enemy. They're seeing him as a threat. The Judaizers want them to reject Paul. The Judaizers want them to shut Paul out and to disown him and treat him as though he doesn't exist. Or if he does exist, that he is going to cause them problems and ruin their lives. And as Paul speaks to them and appeals to them, he wants them to understand that he brought them Jesus. And they want slavery. And Paul's heartbroken for them. At times in our study of this letter, I've asked a simple question. Something along the lines of, is it really that big of a deal if Christians want to practice the law? I mean, does it really hurt anything in the big picture? Are we just making, am I as a pastor, am I as a shepherd, just making a big deal out of nothing? Does it really hurt anything in the big picture? And my answer remains yes. It does really hurt things in the big picture. It is really that big of a deal if Christians want to practice the law. It is that big of a deal if people don't understand what Christ has done for them in his finished work on the cross. And I think these verses give us another reason why it's a big deal. These these verses, these words that Paul writes here, Remind us that the gospel is the basis of our relationship with God and of 
our relationship with one another. To go back to the law is to diminish and damage our experience of the rare and precious bond we share in Jesus. I want to be clear that there is nothing we can do as believers that diminishes our standing and diminishes our relationship with God from his perspective. But I also want us to understand that when we embrace the law as a means of pleasing or obeying God, we are forfeiting all of the security and insurance that we have in the finished work of Jesus. We are creating a performance-based relationship permeated with questions of, have I believed enough? Have I done enough? Is God angry with me? Does God even want me? And of course, the answer is always yes in Jesus. But when we enslave ourselves to the law, our hearts will find no assurance when we are condemned by the law. I can remember talking to college students. Some that I, I was friends with, some that were just students in my classes, and they would, they might catch me on the sidewalk and we'd walk together, or they'd sit down with me in the coffee shop, or they'd come to my office, and, and they, they would begin to open up, and they would begin to ask and say questions that revealed what I now know to be a performance-based relationship. They would question their salvation because they weren't sure that they believed enough when they trusted Christ. They weren't sure that they had done enough. They weren't sure that they had repented enough. They weren't sure that they had prayed the right prayer. When life again went sideways, as I've talked about so many times, the question that would come to mind right away is, is God angry with me? I've had people say to me, I don't think he even wants me. And what that reveals is that we have been operating in a performance-based mentality. We have been operating from a view that I have to do to be accepted with God. I have to do for God to love me enough or to love me more. I have to do to maintain a relationship with God. And of course, if it comes down to whether or not we've done enough, or if it comes down to are we doing the right thing, our hearts won't find any assurance when the law points out our sin. And then we begin to live in fear. And we begin to live in bondage. And when that happens, we begin to wall ourselves off. We begin to wall ourselves off from God. Which is crazy, if you really stop to think about it. To think that the God who knows all and sees all can't penetrate our little facade, our little wall that we put up. But we begin to distance ourselves 
from him. Not that we can ever really move away from God, but we begin to distance the relationship with him. And while we do that, we also, in our fear and bondage, begin to wall one another off. We begin to fear that others will know of our guilt. And we begin to fear that when they really know about us, and they really know our problems, and they really know the areas in which we struggle, if we release that information to them, that they'll condemn us as well. The law is pointing its finger at us, and God wrote the law, and therefore he must be pointing his finger at us. And if anybody else finds out about this, they'll start pointing their finger at us. So we close in. We don't talk about our struggles. We don't ask for anybody to pray for us. We don't let people know where we're at. No one can walk with us. Because they don't really know us. And worse, we begin to justify ourselves. We begin to justify ourselves by judging and condemning others so that we look better to ourselves. I can't tell you how many times I've fallen into this trap. And I would think that at this age and this stage of my life, I wouldn't be doing it anymore. But it's so easy when I'm confronted with my sin to immediately think of someone else who's committed a worse sin so that I feel better about myself, so that I feel better about how God thinks of me. Again, it's just crazy thinking, but it's how we operate. And when we start to believe that other people will condemn us if they know us, and when we start to justify ourselves by judging and and condemning others, then the people we need the most in our walk with Jesus, other believers, other sons and daughters of God, those people become a threat to us. Those people become possible enemies. And those people can never know our secrets. So relationships become shallow and superficial. And sadly, this is the norm in many churches today. How many times when people are walking through really difficult stuff and they're really struggling with sin and maybe they failed, do they begin to distance themselves from people? And they attend less and they attend less and they attend less the gatherings of the believers. And they become critical. They used to they used to love their church. And suddenly you start hearing more and more criticism of others and criticism of the leadership. And pretty soon they start to think in terms of these people aren't really connected with God. And these people really are not that spiritual. And I need to find a place where they're more spiritual. And the church hopping begins. The church shopping begins. 
the church dating begins, and for some of them, church eventually ends. Because the problem is not everyone else, necessarily. The problem is they're living in fear and bondage, and people become enemies. As a pastor, I've seen this happen so many times. I've seen so many times where someone who has come to know Christ, and I may have been instrumental in that, God used me as a tool, so to speak, to bring the gospel to them or to explain the gospel or whatever. And they, they come to know Christ and there's a freshness and there's a, there's a connection and they're always wanting to talk with you. And then all of a sudden one day you notice that their kids aren't quite as friendly as they used to be. And I've learned over the years that when the kids stop being friendly, where they were very friendly before, it's usually because they're hearing mom and dad talk. And the kids' attitudes are changing because the parents' attitudes or a parent's attitude is changing. And then there's less communication. And you reach out to them and they withdraw or they don't respond. And pretty soon you're getting feedback that they're critical and they're unhappy with the church, and they're unhappy with you. And then it gets bigger, it gets more spread out, and before long, they leave in an angry fit. At one point, you could do no wrong. They loved you, and they were your friend and would do anything for you, and now you're in a place where you're the enemy. And there's nothing that you can do for them. That's the danger of falling into a performance-based, fear-controlled bondage of believing that we must earn favor with God. And that's why it's so critical as Paul writes to these people, and as he writes to us, that we don't go back to the law. We must be people who pursue Jesus. We must not come to a place where we are functioning, depending on our works for acceptance with God. We must be people who depend upon the Holy Spirit to change our very being, how we think, how we respond because of who we have become to be more like Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. If we think that we can change by just deciding to change, then we're going to fall into that trap of performance-based works evaluating ourselves on if we have done enough. Are we faithful enough? Is our faith strong enough? Are we godly because of all the things we do? Instead of understanding that it is the fruit of the Spirit that changes 
that comes out of us as the Holy Spirit changes us into the image of Jesus. And it's because of Jesus that God fully accepts us as his children. So we move forward in Galatians. Paul's going to lay out two ways. He's going to lay out living by works, and he's going to lay out living by faith. He's already been hinting at that. He's already been talking about it. That justification is by faith, not by works. That Abraham believed and was counted righteous. But as we move forward, my goal is for us to see these two paths. And the reality is that most Christians live on this path of works, performance, fear, and bondage. When God is calling us to a path of dependence and knowing him in better ways and knowing his word in greater ways and learning of Jesus and wanting to become like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. One way depends on man's efforts. The other way depends upon the Holy Spirit's efforts. And so, when it's all said and done, all this gospel-centered stuff does matter. Because the gospel-centered stuff brings us back to Jesus. And causes us to understand our Father better. And causes us to want Him and His power at work in us. Let's pray together. Father, I am so thankful that You have given us Your Word so that we can understand the basis of of how we can have a relationship with you. And so that we can also understand the basis of how that relationship continues with you. I thank you for sending your son out of your love and mercy to come to this earth and to die in our place and to take our punishment and trust you to raise him from the dead so that we, sinful humans, could become your righteous sons and daughters. Father, use your word in our lives to confront our performance, our earning, our desire to impress you with our works. And use your word to encourage us and to help us to understand what it means to be followers of Jesus and to be more like him. And I ask these things in your son's name. Amen.